the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. podcast. Please like the podcast, podcast. and subscribe podcast. to this channel. Podcast. Thank you. Podcast. Have you experienced several failed relationships or been through a divorce? How can you avoid making the same mistakes again? How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes is out now. Hi, my name is Nigel Beckles. My new book is packed with practical and common sense strategies that you can use to make better relationship choices. Now you can discover the dangerous myths about love. If your relationship expectations are realistic, why you could be falling in love for all the wrong reasons. How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes. It's a book that could change your life. Available from Amazon.co.uk. Kindle version also available. The Exposing the Narcissist podcast series. Narcissists are dangerous social and relationship predators. Hey, where are you going? Narcissists can severely damage the lives of other people. Learn essential information regarding how to protect yourself from a relationship nightmare. <laughs> Don't leave me. Exposing the Narcissist podcast series. Get ready for takeoff. The Exposing the Narcissist in Relationships podcast series. With Marcia Hilton and Nigel Beckles. Episode 1. Hi Marcia, welcome back to my podcast series. How have you been doing? I'm very well, thank you Nigel. I've been... Good, actually. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. So for the benefit of our listeners, how did you become involved with raising awareness in terms of narcissists and narcissism? It actually happened after I come out of my most recent um, relationship, narcissistic relationship. And, you know, after learning about the condition and just talking to, to other women, um, and sharing experiences. And what I found was that there were so many women that were sharing similar experiences, mm. but had no clue of, of what was happening to them. So, you know, they would ex- you know, explain things to me um, about what was happening. And then I would maybe say something about, well, you know, related to narcissism, and then it would be an aha moment for them. So I felt that there was a lack of knowledge about this, condition you know about narcissism and um that's how that's how it started really so it's really about raising awareness mm. and educating women around that well I suppose my experience is very similar because I've been involved with more than one narcissist and I was targeted as they are often very good at targeting people mm. um, and we'll talk about that later on and yes narcissism is a big problem because it's narcissistic abuse awareness day that happens on June the 1st every year. That's, yeah. That was established in 2016. And it's a growing global movement because it's a big problem. And a lot of people don't really understand they've been involved with a narcissistic abuser until afterwards. Absolutely. So we have a lot to unpack during these episodes regarding info on narcissism. So we have a virtual assistant to help us out. Hello, computer. Hello, Nigel. Hello, Marcia. So, computer, what is narcissistic personality disorder? Engage. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM for short, is the handbook used by healthcare professionals in the United States and much of the world as the authoritative guide to the diagnosis of mental disorders. The DSM contains descriptions, symptoms, and other criteria for diagnosing mental disorders. The nine main traits of narcissistic personality disorder are 1. 
has a grandiose sense of self-importance, displays haughty or arrogant behaviors or attitudes, Two, expect to be recognized as superior even without achievements that warrant it, well known for faking achievements, accomplishments and even lying about receiving false awards, they do this to boost their credibility in the eyes of others. 3. Often preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, and brilliance, or beauty, the perfect partner or ideal love. 4. Believes he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by, or should associate with, other special or high-status people or institutions. This is also used to boost their credibility. 5. Requires excessive admiration. 6. Has a strong sense of entitlement unreasonable expectations of favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. 7. Is interpersonally exploitative. Exploits other people mercilessly. Will take advantage of others to achieve his or her own goals. 8. Is often envious of others and often believes that others are envious of them. 9. Lack of empathy. Extremely selfish and can actually obtain sadistic pleasure observing the suffering of others. That includes the person they are in a relationship with. If diagnosed with five or more traits the person will be officially diagnosed as having narcissistic personality disorder. There are many people with undiagnosed personality disorders causing severe damage to the lives of other people. So Masu, what do you think are the most dangerous traits of narcissism and narcissists? For me, the most dangerous trait is this lack of empathy. This whole lack of not being able to have compassion the whole thing around you know it almost feels very um robotic you know when we are able to have uh, empathy and compassion and can have love for somebody else um and so you treat them accordingly these people are not able to to do that and so they're able to cause so much trauma and feel nothing feel absolutely nothing and will destroy lives they will destroy people's lives and I think for me that is probably the most dangerous trait that they have you know people have um lost their lives over this you know there's so many people walking around with um this condition and they just cause so much damage yeah and for me that's that's probably the most dangerous trait that they they have well, I would have to agree. And another dangerous trait they have is envy. They are envious of other people and they assume other people are envious of them. Mm-hmm. So initially they may be attracted to a person because of that person's accomplishments. Uh, but eventually they're going to grow envious and jealous of your accomplishments and try to destroy you because that is what they do. Um, and they are exceedingly selfish. But as adults, we have to understand they are actually very emotionally immature. Basically, you're dealing with a child trapped in an adult body. Absolutely. But yes, and as you said, there are a lot of people walking around with undiagnosed personality disorders who are causing immense damage to the lives of other people. Another trait that's not really mentioned in the uh, the DSM, the nine traits, is that, is that they are extremely thin-skinned. They are extremely sensitive. So for all their arrogance, they actually, they have low self-esteem. I think I absolutely agree with you. Um, low self-esteem. And if, you know, like you said, they're so thin-skinned. And actually, you could accidentally, you know, offend them and <laughs> not even realise. And they actually carry that grudge. For long periods of time and make you pay for something that is 
for us normals, something that you just say and carry on um, and not even realise you've caused an injury, but they will take that and, you know, because they're so thin-skinned, take it so, so personally and become very um, grudgeful about it and cause problems for that as well. Well, they are known to be very vindictive when they've been slighted. Computer, what is narcissistic injury? Engage. A narcissistic injury occurs when narcissists react negatively to perceived or justified criticism or judgments. They can react with hostility if boundaries are applied to their abusive behavior. A narcissistic injury can also be experienced by a narcissist when someone seeks to make them accountable for harmful or abusive behaviors. Yes, well, as I was saying, they are very thin-skinned. They're very sensitive to criticism. And it's funny because I've noticed that there are narcissists in the public arena who produce work for public consumption. But if their work does not get any praise, they get very offended. Yet logic should tell you that if you're producing something for public consumption, not everyone's necessarily going to like it. And we should also explore a little bit the fact that narcissists can target anyone. And often they target strong, successful people and then take pleasure in destroying their lives. They can be attracted to successful people because it boosts their own ego and boosts their reputation using a tactic called credibility by association. But I think the worst relationship for us normal people uh, is uh, the relationship between an empath and a narcissist because the empath is always going to be giving and the narcissist is always going to be taking. So that can be a bit of a nightmare if you have strong empathic traits. We will explore love bombing later on how they entice targets into a relationship but let's explore the narcissistic relationship cycle computer what is the narcissist relationship cycle engage the relationship cycle typical of extreme narcissistic abuse generally follows a particular pattern individuals in these emotionally abusive relationships will experience three stages one idealization two devaluation then three being discarded Many narcissists struggle to sustain a relationship for more than six months or perhaps for a few years. The narcissist hoover is also a part of the abusive relationship cycle. This occurs when they will try to suck a person back into a toxic relationship. The goal of hoovering is to get their ex-partner back under their control. So Marcia, when did you become aware that narcissists actually have a cycle in their relationships? It was actually when I started to do the research. It was when I started to do the research and because I so desperately needed to know what had, what had happened to me. And I did come across this, it was the cycle of abuse. And when I kind of read that, I thought everything seems to fit. Everything seems to fit. So it's a cycle. Yeah, it was really when I started to do the research um, and I started to do a lot of reading around narcissism. I needed to understand what had happened to me. And that's when I actually came across this cycle of narcissistic abuse and what was really interesting to me about it was when you actually have an understanding of it they're actually quite easy to predict they are very predictable unfortunately that is usually after the event Uh, but their relationships are always transactional they treat people like objects and they always have an ulterior motive and selfish agenda 
The other thing about them is that they never take responsibility or accept accountability for their behavior. So the final part of the cycle is often the Hoover attempt. Computer, what is the narcissistic Hoover? Engage. When a survivor has gone no contact, decided to disengage completely from the abusive person, made a firm decision to remain no contact, the abuser will often attempt to see if they can return. He or she may try to hoover prior survivors by emailing, texting, phoning, or showing up at a survivor's workplace or residence. For example, delivering gifts, pretending to be unwell, or requiring assistance. This is done under the pretext of trying to suck a person back into a toxic relationship cycle. While many victims of relationship abuse are vulnerable to the hoover due to trauma bonding, and we'll explore that in a future episode. What I wanted to ask you was... Why do you think narcissists often practice ghosting after the discard? Because they are known for just disappearing. I think it's, it's all part and parcel of the immature game that they play. It's to see how much damage that they can cause. So they disappear knowing that their target or victim will be completely devastated because they have no idea what's going on. So staying away will cause them the most damage in the eyes of the the narcissist and they can stand afar and and, and look and laugh. Well, that's very true. I mean, the Hoover, I think often when they come back, they're actually coming back to see how much damage they've done. And I also believe that many people believe the biggest fear of a narcissist is being exposed. But I actually think the biggest fear of a narcissist is for the survivor to just get on and live their best life. I would agree with that. I think a lot of the time we think that, you know, getting revenge on the narcissist is the best thing to do, you know, but they would love for that because that would just give them more supply, as it were, or attention, whether it's negative or positive. They would just love that because they know how much they have got to you. But if you get on with your life, if you go on to live your best life, if you go on to be happy, they'll be looking on and say, well, how dare you be happy without me? Because they see us, the target, as an extension of themselves. We're not supposed to sort of go off and, and have a life without them. And yeah, I think, I think that would cause them the most, the most damage or injury to them. I want to talk about how they actually lure people in, because as you know, love bombing is one of their major tactics. So basically they love bomb you with all this attention and gifts and promises of a future. The person doesn't realize that certain hormones are being triggered like dopamine, serotonin, oxycotin, and endorphins amongst others. So they get addicted to the high. And then when the devaluation starts in terms of their cycle, Uh, because we know it's idealization, devaluation, and then the discard. That's why many people find it difficult to actually get over the discard. And that also leaves people vulnerable to being hoovered. I think when when you're in, especially when you're in the, the sort of devaluation stage, you have that intermittent reinforcement going on. So they will be, you know, treating you shabbily, and then you'll get these little bits of, you know, where they treat you really well. So it's that kind of reinforcement, um, like throwing crumbs to you so that you think, oh, everything is all right. And they, and then it isn't again. So and that really perpetuate the bonding, the trauma bonding. And just like you said, you know, with these endorphins that are, that are going on, it just keeps you attached to this person. So um, in a normal relationship, you'd know that 
if you are being treated shabbily, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't actually put up with it. But in, in this situation, it's this intermittent re- reinforcement that kind of locks you into this to this person a good example would be but you know the Stockholm syndrome where I think somewhere in Stockholm where um, a kidnapping scenario um, where women were held hostage and at the end of that when they were released I think one of the women actually paid the bond for one of her bailed him out one of her captives and I think the other one married one of her captives and you would think in a situation like that you wouldn't even want to see the person that's abused you or you know the perpetrator you wouldn't want to see them but it's that intermittent reinforcement that, that happens all you know throughout that transaction rather than the relationship and that's what causes the the trauma bonding well yes indeed it does i've read many stories of people missing their abuser not understanding that they've actually been trauma bonded let's talk a little bit about the actual abusive tactics that they use so the first one I'm going to look at is uh, the silent treatment because the silent treatment basically is a form of control or punishment or used to invalidate someone's feelings or one of their favorites to avoid responsibility for their behavior. And research has shown that the silent treatment can actually cause damage to the brain. Absolutely. Probably what, in my opinion, at least, I think it is one of the most damaging things that they can do in, in a relationship to actually Again, like you said, it is this this form of control. Um, if they think that you have stepped out of line, they will use that to to bring you back into into line, basically, into into so that they can still have that control over you. Leaves you confused. It leaves you wondering what has happened. Um, it side blinds people, and the person that it's affecting will wanting will be wanting to put it right, whatever situation they think done you know they're wanting to know what have I done wrong and they'll go out of their way to make it better whatever it is that they think they've done or whatever it is that they the the narcissist has put on that person imaginary or not another abuse tactic they use is gaslighting where they try to change a person's perception of reality that to me so confusing so confusing they're gonna tell you oh I like your hair long and then you keep it long. And then, you know, next week it's, why don't you cut your hair? I don't like it long. You know, it's, it's very confusing. Or they will say something. And when you challenge them about it, next thing you know, well, actually, they didn't say that. So this whole, it just confuses the issue and leaves you wondering if you're the one that's not right. Or is it you that's getting confused? Is it you that's getting things wrong? What is wrong with me? Because I'm not understanding what's happening. So the gaslighting is is designed really to completely confuse you, to make you think that you are in the wrong, to make you think that actually perhaps you're the one with with a mental health issue. And it depends on how I would say, I don't know if that's the right word, how viciously they use it. They use it quite often. Then people will feel as if they're going mad. I did. I was second guessing myself all the time. It got to the point where sometimes I had to start writing things down to to kind of prove that, yes, this did happen or no, it didn't happen. So, you know, my advice as well would be sometimes to people would be, if you're not sure, you know, just just write things down because sometimes they can so that you can prove to yourself almost that, yes, this did happen. I think all of their behaviours are damaging, but I think gaslighting is, is up there, I think, with the silent treatment. Well, emotional abuse is a very serious type of abuse. In many ways, I believe it is more damaging than actual physical abuse. Computer, what are the negative effects of emotional abuse on the brain? 
Engage. Research clearly demonstrates emotional abuse negatively impacts on certain areas of the brain. The amygdala controls life functions such as breathing, heart rate plus the basic emotions of love, hate, fear, lust, grief, guilt, envy, and shame. Repeated emotional abuse enlarges the amygdala. Repeated emotional injuries also shrinks the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory and learning. Repeated emotional injuries shrinks the hippocampus while enlarging the amygdala. Yeah, so there are various tactics that they use, and it can be very serious for the person. And it can take a long time to recover. Some people don't, some people don't recover at all because they're so emotionally damaged and the brain damage that follows. I've met somebody in the past who was so damaged by, you know, a narcissist that she didn't speak. She actually stopped talking. I mean, that's an extreme, an extreme example, but that is the reality. And some people actually take their lives, don't they? Sadly, sadly, yes. yes. Engage. If you suspect you are in a relationship with a narcissist or interacting with a person that always seems to be hungry for praise and attention, do your own research. There is plenty of great information online. Podcast. The Exposing the Narcissist in Relationships podcast series with Marcia Hilton and Nigel Beckles, episode two. However, narcissists can also recruit what they call flying monkeys to abuse the survivor by proxy. Computer. What are flying monkeys? Engage. Flying monkeys is a term used in popular psychology mainly in the context of narcissistic abuse. Flying monkeys are also known as the entourage, accomplices, enablers, campaign managers, or extensions of the narcissist. A narcissist will recruit sometimes unsuspecting people to spy on or abuse a former partner by proxy. There are people who act as flying monkeys consciously on behalf of a narcissist. This is usually for abusive purposes. For example, a smear campaign can often be used. A smear campaign involves deliberately spreading untrue rumors, gossip, or lies, seeking to damage the reputation of the ex-partner. Well, I've actually experienced fire monkeys, and they're very good friends of mine. They just didn't know they were being played, basically. The ex-narcissist contacted them and said she was concerned about me. However, I had broken contact. I'd gone no contact for. So there would be no reason for her to be concerned because she didn't have any contact with me. Flying monkeys can cause a lot of damage as well. I mean, some of them are consciously abusive. Others are manipulated. Obviously, there's a thing called the the smear campaign, which we'll get into a bit later, uh, where they will seek to ruin a person's reputation. Yeah, and, you know, in my experience, the flying monkeys have had clearly had no idea that they (laughs) were being manipulated. I think Mm. they were well-meaning. However, you know, when I think about some of the situations for myself, once you you know, once you've been armed with the information, you you can tell. They will come and and ask you things and and you know straight away that they're going to take it back because especially in my case, for example, I've not had any contact. I'd got no contact with my ex for almost over a year and the you know and I thought you know with the flying monkey I just got a text out of the blue from the flying monkey um, and I knew straight away that there was something behind it and I think they wanted to give me information and to ask me things and I do believe personally that that was a, a heat test to see whether I would bite but I didn't and I think and I had to actually say 
to the you know to the person please don't speak to me about about my ex I don't want to actually have any I don't have to have any conversations about that with you so please don't bring it to me basically and so I had to kind of cut that conversation and I asked my friends not not to talk about him with me and just leave it at that because I knew that he was using them to to get to me the other thing actually slightly different social media and using the social media and other people's on fly monkeys accounts to spy on mine as well well they are known to spy they're also known to stalk ex-partners but the flying monkeys are often a product of the smear campaign because they will spread rumors and gossip about you to basically try and diminish your character and make themselves look like the poor helpless victim when it when in fact it's the uh other way around Uh, but then going back to the narcissistic relationship cycle when they are going through the idealization devalue then discard stage during the devaluation and discard they're already looking for a new supply and have already found a new supply by the time the discard comes around all of their relationships go through the same cycle as you know and as we were discussing earlier that relationship cycle can be very traumatic. It will be because in the beginning, in the idealization stage, you know, you think that you have met your soulmate. You're on cloud nine. You know, this person, you know, in that in that idealization state has, has put you on a pedestal. You can do no wrong. They tell you that they, they love you. You really think at this stage that this is it. This is your soulmate. And everybody around you as well think you're an amazing couple. And everybody thinks that, you know, your partner is wonderful. And then you move into the devaluation stage and you think, what's happened? But because you're already bonded and you're in the devaluation stage, you're trying to play catch up all the time. You're wanting to get back to that place where you were when you were being idealised. And suddenly you're not there anymore and you're not understanding what's happening. And all of a sudden this, this person is disapproving and you can't understand why. So you keep trying, you keep trying to get back to that place where it was all perfect, but it's just not happening. And the more more and more they will, will say and do things to demean you and diminish you. And like you said, um, Nigel, at, by this stage, they are most likely grooming somebody else and preparing them. And by the time you get to the devalue, the, the discard stage, they're ready to, to move on. They've secured the person that they've been grooming and they're ready to put you to one side or put you in the bin, discard. I really hate that term, actually, discard, because it sounds like you're just a piece of rubbish that you just pop into the bin. Well, a lot of people don't like the term, but effectively that is what's happened. Because, as I said before, <laughs> narcissists treat people like objects. So an object can be discarded. It's not a very pleasant experience, having been there myself. Yeah, I, I mean, and I have. For me, that term kind of so, I don't know, dehumanises us. I don't even like the term victim, you know, but we are when, when that happens to us, you know, or the target. But, you know, it's for me, it's like I would, I, would, I think I, I prefer to say disengagement rather than discard because they, the discard, more often than not, is not permanent, is it? They will usually try and hoover when the new supply hasn't worked out for one Hmm. reason or another, or they can't get any narcissistic supply anywhere else in the form of sex and attention. And that's always going to happen, isn't it? Because of the cycle of abuse. Hmm. They just do that 
over and it's like rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And it's a bit like a child. You use a child that's just had their birthday and they've got some new toys, lovely, and they play with this new toy. And then maybe a few months down the line or a year down the line, they get another new toy. So the one that they wonderful was the best toy in the world. That gets, like you say, maybe discarded or put on a shelf for, you know, and while they're enjoying themselves with the new toy that they've got. But eventually they'll remember that they've got this old toy stuck on a shelf somewhere and they'll pull it down eventually blow off the dust and play with that and then throw it down again some of them do get put in the bin completely and never to be seen again it really depends on what's happened depends on the individual narcissist really and it also depends what's happening in their life because if the new relationship or the new supply has not worked out then they're going to be looking for other supplies so you can never say never i always say well a hoover could happen after two months two years 15 years i've read stories of of narcissists trying to hoover up their former partner over 20 years later well that happened to me 15 years (laughs) 15 years that's what happens split and then 15 years later he popped up again (laughs) at the end of the day the, the whole trauma bonding can make it very difficult to resist the hoover computer what is trauma bonding Engage. Trauma bonding refers to a state of being emotionally attached to an ex-partner or another person who was abusive. It is a very negative form of bonding that can keep a person loyal to a destructive person or relationship. The abuser uses cycles of abuse and then some form of reward or act of kindness to keep a person engaged emotionally and psychologically. Trauma bonding is a biochemical addiction to an abuser. Which is why a lot of people struggle to remain no contact which is the best thing for you to do with any type of abuser? I did struggle initially. And I think part of that was wanting to to get answers, not understanding. Because the other thing as well is that they're not going to give you closure. But if everything is just up in the air, very confusing. If he'd said to me, that's it, we're done, we're finished, we're over. I think I would have accepted that, even though I'd have been upset still. But when you're not clear, you don't know what's going on. Are we together? Are we not? what's what's happening in my case it was oh let's revisit because it happened so quickly as well there's no warning and I think that's why people are blindsided because it's happened out of the blue it's something that you weren't expecting to happen would you agree oh absolutely that was certainly my experience that was certainly my experience more than once apart from trauma bonding victims can also suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder computer what is PTSD? Engage. Symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD for short. A person suffering with PTSD often relives a traumatic event. They may have problems sleeping, have difficulties concentrating or may experience nightmares, flashbacks, and other negative symptoms including feelings of isolation, irritability or guilt. These and other symptoms are often severe and persistent enough to have a significant impact on the person's day-to-day life. Having a condition like PTSD can be very taxing on the human body. Recent research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association has confirmed that PTSD is linked to autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, Crohn's disease, and celiac disease. PTSD can be very serious, something that victims and survivors of abusive relationships suffer. And also many people are diagnosed with very painful chronic autoimmune disorders. People can also suffer with triggers 
when an event reminds them of the abuser. So that could be a smell, a picture, or various other triggers that can be emotionally distressing, which is why no contact is so important. Because the longer you go no contact, hopefully the quicker you're going to heal. So no contact Mm. means no stalking on social media, no walking past their residence. Some people misinterpret what no contact means, but no contact means no contact. So what was your experience of going no contact? Bearing in mind you were involved with the ex-narcissist twice. It was very, very difficult, I must admit. Initially, I, I didn't know that I needed to go no contact. I was calling he would speak to me, but it was very cold. Um, but then when I had done the reading and realised what he was and understood that the best thing for me would be to go no contact, I did. There were times when I had to sit on my hands because I really wanted to call, but I had to overcome that because I knew that that would be the best thing for me in terms of recovery because I knew that I didn't want to go back to, to that once I understood what he was. And I'm not going to lie, I struggled with the no contact. The information being being forearmed helped me with the no contact, but it was difficult. Well, unfortunately, not everyone has the option to go no contact, full no contact, because they may co-parent the ex-narcissist. So there is another method um, I've heard of. Computer, what is the grey rock method? Engage. The Grey Rock Method is a practice where an individual becomes emotionally, non-responsive, boring, and virtually acts like a rock. Emotional detachment serves to undermine a narcissist's attempts to manipulate. This causes the narcissist to grow uninterested and bored. The Grey Rock Method takes away what the narcissist needs and desires most, the craving for attention. And there's also something called the Yellow Rock Method, where if you have to deal with the court system in terms of parenting, you keep your correspondence, you know, very civil, very polite, because obviously the abuser and the court officials are going to be reading what you put in writing and they may try and use that information against you, especially if you appear to be vindictive or angry. You know, they can try and use those things against you. And understandably, a person is angry when they've been abused and obviously a narcissist will try and use the children often as a weapon against the other parent. That's interesting, actually, because I, I knew of that, but I didn't know the term yellow rock. So I've learned something today. So what do you feel helped you most with your recovery and healing? I think the thing that helped me the most was understanding. It was the information. It was knowing that I wasn't at fault. It was knowing that it wasn't me. Understanding that that I didn't do anything wrong, I think, was a big help for me. The other thing that helped in in my recovery was having a really strong support network. My faith actually was another thing that helped me with my recovery. And just doing the inner work, understanding for myself that there must have been things about me that drew that to me. And for me, it was kind of looking at how can I not allow that to happen again. So it was looking at things like the boundaries, making sure that I had tighter boundaries, looking at my values and and all of those things, I think, helped me with my recovery. Well, I think from many survivors, the thing that helps them the most is actually doing their own research. Because I know certainly for myself, 
I was a researching demon when it came to narcissists, trying to work out what had happened. And as you said, trying to make sure it doesn't happen not only to me, but to anyone else again. Because as you said before, some people don't make it through the other side. The Exposing the Narcissist in Relationships podcast series with Marcia Hilton and Nigel Beckles, episode three. Hi, Marcia. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Nigel. And how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, this is going to be our third episode on narcissists and narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing to say is all abusive relationships are motivated by the abuser seeking power and control absolutely the thing with narcissism though even though the term is thrown around quite loosely these days is there is such a thing as healthy narcissism now healthy narcissism is a term some people do not like but healthy narcissism exists many people may have traits of narcissism without meeting the criteria for the personality disorder Healthy narcissism is a category of its own, and it's actually very positive. So people with healthy narcissism, they are self-aware, they like to collaborate, but they're not exploitative. They're flexible, they're firm, but respectful. They are team players, but also, as we know, they are toxic narcissists. The toxic narcissist has toxic traits. And also with narcissists, it's not a one-size-fits-all description of the personality disorder. There are different types Mm. of narcissists. Computer, what are the different types of narcissists. Engage. Narcissism exists on a spectrum, and there are many different types of narcissism. While a person can be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, there is no clinical diagnosis for any subtypes of narcissism. Some types of narcissism have been identified and validated by peer-reviewed research. Other types have been informally named and popularized by various mental health professionals. There is not a specific number of narcissistic subtypes. Types of narcissism and narcissists recognized by experts include grandiose narcissism. In psychology, grandiosity refers to having an unrealistic sense of superiority. Grandiose narcissism thus involves overestimating one's abilities, asserting one's dominance over others, and having a generally inflated sense of self-esteem. Somatic narcissism. Somatic narcissists often obsess over their weight and physical appearance and criticize others based on their appearance. Cerebral narcissist. Cerebral or intellectual narcissists derive their self-importance from their minds. Cerebral narcissists believe they are more intelligent than other people. Then we have the overt narcissist who tends to be aggressive and have extreme delusions of grandeur and the need for attention. And then there is the covert narcissist, who I think those type of narcissists are the most dangerous of all. Computer, what are the traits of a covert narcissist? Engage. Covert narcissists can be challenging to identify. The DSM-5 criteria for narcissistic personality disorder includes the following. Arrogant behavior. Preoccupied with illusions about success, brilliance or beauty. Demands continuous praise from others. Easily envious of what others have. Exaggerates achievements and talents. Expects to be recognized as superior even without results or evidence to support these claims. Expects others to meet their needs or expectations without question has an inflated sense of entitlement, feels superior to others and believes they can only be understood by equally superior people, takes advantage of and exploits others without remorse to reach personal goals, extreme lack of empathy or any regard for the feelings of others, concealed smugness or superiority. They may not express any obvious negativity regarding what they are feeling. 
likely to express a sense of their irritation or annoyance verbally or through their body language. Examples of this may include glares, lack of eye contact, rolling of their eyes or other dismissive gestures. Known to be highly self-absorbed, passive-aggressive, highly sensitive, vindictive. I would have to agree with you about the covert narcissist being the worst. I feel that they, because they hide, they hide. They're kind of like right there before you, but hidden in plain sight is, is the word that I, is probably the phrase that I would use with these people. And they come over as charming, um, intelligent, everybody likes them. So they have a public face and a private face. So in public face, they're the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. And then the private face behind closed doors, that's when they are so vindictive and mean and quite evil, actually, towards their partner. So for me, the covert narcissist is actually the worst. With the overt narcissist, because we know that they are aggressive, they're grandiose, they are exploitative, you know what you're getting. And most people can see that and will avoid them like the plague. Then you have this cerebral narcissists again they're easier to spot I would say than the covert because again having a conversation with them you will see the superiority and they you know, can see this kind of like feelings of grandeur that you can actually see being displayed by the cerebral narcissist as well and of course you've got the somatic one who's always preening themselves you'll see them you know in the gym with the muscles or if it's a female you know you know they'll be the best thing since sliced bread and they will let everybody know well, regardless of whether they're overt or covert, um, they do have certain traits in common. For example, they're in constant pursuit of attention, recognition, status, prestige and money. They are excessively self-absorbed, obsessed with wealth, power, status and possessions. Um, and whether covert or overt, they are very vindictive and they will seek revenge if they perceive their fragile ego has been attacked. So let's talk a little bit about how they lure unsuspecting people into relationships. In a previous episode, we discussed love bombing. But one of the other tactics they use within the love bombing stage is mirroring. Computer, what is mirroring? Engage. Mirroring is a manipulation tactic used by relationship predators to secure very rapid intimacy and trust with the target or victim. Narcissists and other abusive personality types often study other people carefully. To discover what they need to know for the purpose of manipulation, mirroring is designed to encourage the target or victim to share their deepest dreams, but also any fears and vulnerabilities, which will eventually be used against them. This strategy is also used to assist the abuser in determining how they can use the other person. This could be for sex, to increase their status by association, or for financial assistance. Another abusive tactic they often use is emotional baiting, which involves playing with the emotions of others. Emotional baiting is usually employed to elicit negative emotions. Basically, they try and bait the other person into an argument, and they can do that in various ways. For example, they may make untrue accusations. They may play the victim. They may try and make their partner jealous by flirting with other people. You know, and that goes along with the other tactics, you know, like the silent treatment, ignoring you if they're upset, sulking, and a range of other things we've spoken about before. But in terms of emotional baiting, the best response is no response. Don't let them push your buttons. Don't get drawn into any silly arguments. 
if you're in a relationship with someone who's an emotional beta, your best course of action is to leave. Because with emotional baiting, there can be a result of reactive abuse. Mm-hmm. So a person can react negatively to being abused, which is understandable. But then the narcissist will turn that around often and say, the person being abused is actually the abuser. Because right. as we know, narcissists are excellent at playing the victim. In terms of emotional baiting, I think it's probably the worst. They, um, you know, will turn it around to make it as if you were the, you know, they're the victim. You are the one that's causing the problem. They are never in the wrong. And, you know, they get you to the point where you actually, <laughs> I'm not even sure if you actually believe it, but it's almost like you, almost like you can't believe what's, what's actually being said and done because you're thinking this, no, 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 this isn't right. This is what I meant. I didn't, that's not what I meant. I meant this, but they're interpreting it in a, in a particular way and you know, emotionally baiting and making it feel as if, you know, we have wronged them in some way. All the while knowing what they are doing is it's a deliberate thing to make us feel bad, really. The jealousy um, aspect of it as well, when um, they're flirting with other people and sometimes, you know, involving other people so they kind of triangulate. I know that it can be, triangulation can be, doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who is romantically involved with them, but more often than not it is. So it'll be um, flirting with somebody outrageously in front of you and they will compare you negatively with that person or even strangers even so and when a person tries to use jealousy as a weapon it's a clear sign that your emotions are being used to manipulate you but you mentioned flirting Mm. and what i have observed a great deal in the several support groups that i belong to as well as the group i co-created several years ago is once a person has been discarded often Mm. they are jealous and distraught because the narcissist has moved on so quickly with a new partner. And as we know, the narcissist has already groomed the new partner or the new supply before they leave their current partner, now the ex-partner. And there is a misconception that the new supply is somehow better than the person who's been left. And they are often left feeling they're not good enough or they can spend many hours comparing themselves to the replacement and they can also be desperate for answers. But the reality is the new supply is not better. They simply possess something that the narcissist wants or needs at that current moment because with a narcissist as their needs change so they must change their supply absolutely or if they feel they're going to be discovered within a relationship they will be making plans to leave because as we know they do not like to be held accountable and they do not take responsibility and at the end of the day i always say a person does not have to be a mental health professional to observe or decide if another person is toxic because toxic is toxic if you're going to wait around for a official diagnosis you could well be putting yourself at further emotional and mental risk and the other thing is of course is that narcissists really go for a diagnosis or assessment anyway because they believe they're the best thing since sliced bread they believe there's nothing wrong with them and they're perfect i think you know based on what what you've just said there especially if you know you you made the statement that if we're going to wait around 
for, for things to be different, you know, then we're putting our mental and emotional health at risk. And I think, again, it's really about, and it's very difficult when you're in that situation, especially if you are unaware who you are dealing with. But there is this thing, I think, that if you know that what is happening to you did not deserve this, if you know that you deserve better, if you have proper boundaries in place, then you know to step away but it's difficult when you're in it and you're, you're unaware of what's of what's happening oh very very difficult very difficult indeed those qualities that these you know that is that targets have with empathy they are good people these are things that the narcissists don't have but want so they want to steal bits of you either gender can be targeted by a narcissist Absolutely. i mean they are personality traits that make a person more susceptible to abusers in general and a personality trait is not a whole personality a personality mm. trait could be the person's been previously abused or previously been in a abusive relationship they may engage in negative self-talk they may have low self-esteem they may have a fear of being single there might be a bit of a people pleaser they may have poor boundaries and a variety of other personality traits that they're not even aware of but it makes them more susceptible to being abused. Absolutely. And that's why it's important to do that, that inner work. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. Counseling, therapy, online support groups, actual support groups, they're all important, all important for recovery and for healing and for moving on. So Marcia, what are your recommendations for recovery and healing? The first thing is, in terms of recovery, is go no contact. You have to, I think, you cannot recover. You can't even begin the process of recovery if you are still having contact with the with the perpetrator, with the narcissist, if you're still having conversations with him, if you're still asking for an explanation if you're still wanting to get closure you are not healing you need to separate because you're just not going to get the closure from it from a narcissist that's something that you're just not going to get because they don't actually want closure they want an opportunity to be able to pop back up in your life at a later date you're going to be put on a shelf until a later date so you are the one that has to actually do the discarding you're the one that has to do closure we are the ones that have to do that so and to start off in terms of healing go no contact break all contact i know it's more difficult if you've got um, children or some sort of commitment with them then that makes it a little bit more difficult but i think the first thing in terms of healing is the least contact you can have with these people the better well you mentioned closure well i believe the only closure a person really needs is understanding that they deserve better because i can guarantee that a person who goes another person and fails to give that person and closure it's not the first time they have ghosted a partner right because with them it's it's a pattern of behavior because again we go back to not wanting to be accountable or be responsible because in a healthy relationship obviously not all relationships work out but Mm. there is a way that you know you sit down as two adults you might say well this is not working etc and even you may be unhappy that the relationship's ending but at least you've got an idea as to why but i always say the failure to provide closure is very immature and cowardly that is my position and i would have to agree so what do you think about support groups 
I think support groups are very useful. I think they do serve a really good purpose. It helps people because remember when sometimes when people have suffered narcissistic abuse, a lot of the time they think they're on their own, that they're the only ones that have experienced something like this. So for um, a support group to be there for them that they can tap into is actually really helpful. It's, it's, it's actually part of the healing process because you're thinking, I'm actually not on my own. Somebody else has experienced this I have you know you now have something that you can have as a bit of a frame of reference whereas you probably wouldn't have had that before because this is so unlike anything that you've experienced before like he was saying earlier it is not like a normal relationship and trying to explain this to somebody who has never experienced it it's it's very difficult they don't get it so you do feel quite isolated and on your own so having a support group where people are having similar experiences is really is really very helpful I think and is very useful for the recovery journey. Well as you know I created a support group um, reflections on abusive relationships on Facebook um, several years ago. We now have 21,000 plus members and I have to say a very big thank you to the admin team for the group uh, because the group could not manage effectively without them. But I think mm. support groups are a very valuable resource because, as you said, it is very isolating when you're in an abusive relationship. And it doesn't have to be an abusive relationship with a narcissist. Any type of abusive relationship can make a person feel very lonely because one of the tactics an abuser will use is isolation. And I often read in these groups and with some of the people I support they tell me they felt it was only happening to them or they were the only person who had been through that and i think support groups are a great a great resource i really do besides support groups obviously therapy and counseling can also be very helpful and one of the key things when a person is recovering from a abusive relationship is self-care absolutely and the goal is to get from victim to survivor to striver to get your life back together to, to move move on and live the best life that you can well marcia thank you very much this has been very interesting and intriguing thank you nigel been a pleasure engage if you suspect you are in a relationship with a narcissist or interacting with a person that always seems to be hungry for praise and attention do your own research there is plenty of great information online the podcast series hosted by author Nigel Beckles, featuring discussions with award-winning authors, therapists, coaches, plus individuals with intriguing stories to share. Available on all major podcast platforms now. 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 Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. Another in conversation podcast coming soon.